You can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of John. As we work our way through John's Gospel, we're in chapter 12, which brings us to the conclusion of his public ministry. We'll see that, God willing, next Sunday. We have a bit of a theology of unbelief in our section this morning. Our uh, uh, section this morning under consideration will be 30 verses 34 to 41, but I do want to pick up reading in John 12 at verse 20. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Uh, most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. The people answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus said to them, A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. That the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our gracious God and Holy Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the day of God and the house of God and the people of God and the privilege that is ours to gather together. We ask that you would be glorified in this glad hour. We pray that you would be worshipped and adored, that as we come to the Father, through the Son, and the power of the Holy Spirit, God would be all in all in this place. We pray now for the ministry of the Spirit, that he would guide us and direct us and lead us as we consider this passage of Holy Scripture. And may we ponder the, the, the importance of such a text in terms of unbelief. We know that sinners are, 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 are told to, to look unto the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, that they may have everlasting life. And we pray that even today, God, you'd open hearts, that you would give the graces of faith and repentance, so that sinners may in fact close with you and know the joy of being found in the Lord Jesus. 
Jesus. We pray that for our meeting together here. We pray that for churches throughout this city and this nation and to the uttermost parts of the earth. We pray that today would be the day of salvation for a great multitude from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Do forgive us now for all of our sin and all unrighteousness. Build us up in our most holy faith. And we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, it's probably helpful for us just to review the major sections in John's gospel at this particular point. So in John 1, verses 1 to 18, we have what's called the prologue. And essentially what John does is he locates the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of the triune God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was uh, with God, and the Word was God. And then in 1.14 it says, That Word, who was with God, who was God, became flesh and dwelt among us. And then in John 1 at verse 19, all the way to John 12, at the very end, we have what's called the book of the signs. In other words, it's the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus when he goes about doing those signs, doing those miracles, and calling upon sinners to believe on him. And then from 13.1 to the end of chapter 20, you have the book of the Passion. And so we are coming to that place where we're finishing or concluding the earthly ministry of our Lord Jesus and entering in, as I said, to the book of the Passion. And you see specifically in chapters 13 to 15, uh, 13 to 16, what we call the upper room discourse, and then John, uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, then of course the arrest, and then the delivering up to the cross. So that's sort of an outlook as to where we're going. But here, as John reflects upon the unbelief of the Jews, I don't think it's just connected to the immediate context. I think he is musing, as it were, on Jesus' ministry as a whole. As I said, there'll be a concluding portion in chapter 12 that we'll look at, God willing, next week. But when John goes back to the prophet Isaiah to try to provide the rationale as to why Jesus came to his own and his own received him not, he's musing on the broader contour of Jesus' ministry. And I would like to encourage all of us to understand that it's not just a reflection upon Jesus' contemporaries who rejected him, who did not believe the gospel, but there's certainly our contemporaries today. We preach the gospel and not all men believe. Not everybody comes to the Lord Jesus. No, not everybody looks to him in faith and understands the joy of being found in him. So if you this morning are conscious of that reality, then I would encourage you to listen to the words of life. The Lord Jesus very much pointedly says, believe on the light. Come to the light, namely himself, so that you may become children or sons of the light. So again, this isn't just a problem confined to the first century and the repudiation of our Lord Jesus by the Jewish unbelievers there, but it's certainly a situation that we face today. So let's look first at the Lord's uh, uh, rather, the question concerning the Messiah in verses 34 to 36, and then the explanation of their unbelief in verses 37 to 41. In terms of the immediate context, remember that in John 12, in verses 20 to 26, Jesus announced the arrival of the hour. Notice that he says that in verse 23. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. That refers to his death on the cross, his life, his death, his resurrection, the means by which we have everlasting life. We need the forgiveness of sins 
as a result of his shed blood, but we need the, the life of obedience for that imputation of Christ's righteousness, which is received by faith alone. So the hour had come upon him. And then in verses 27 and following, he explains the significance of that hour. In other words, why is this important? Why is it at this hour that the Son will be glorified? Why in the glorification of the Son is the Father going to be glorified in this glad hour? Well, I think Jesus explains it very effectively and essentially says that in this hour, what we have is the defeat of the devil, we have the defeat of the world, and we have the defeat of sinners. And I don't mean them complete destruction, but their rebellion against him is fixed as a result of the gospel. Notice in verse 30, he says, This voice did not come because of me, for your, uh, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Again, he's highlighting the significance of the hour. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. So he takes care of the judgment of the world. He takes care of the ruler of this world, even the devil. And then he goes on to underscore the power of Christ relative to the sinfulness of man. He says in verse 32, And if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. So the death of the Lord Jesus Christ brings that judgment upon the world. The death of our Lord Jesus Christ brings that judgment or that casting out of the devil. And then that death of our Lord Jesus Christ answers to man's sin problem. It's through his life, it's through his death, it's through his resurrection that we have justification. Now notice on the heels of that, the question concerning the Messiah in verses 34 to 36. Now that John tells us they did not believe helps us to understand sort of their mindset or the manner with which they asked these questions in verse 34. Notice, the people answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Now, if it sounds like I'm speaking in a way that is a bit uh, 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 derogatory, that's their mindset. Again, John's going to explain that they were not believing. John's going to provide the rationale with reference to the prophet Isaiah. But notice specifically, we have heard from the law. Here I think law refers to the entirety of the Old Testament. It refers to everything that we see in the law and the prophets and the writings. We have heard from our Bibles. We have heard from the promise concerning Messiah. We have heard concerning the promise of the Son of Man that this Christ will last forever. He will live forever. And they were not wrong here. If you look at the nature of their question, they're not wrong. They just don't have a full orb understanding of Old Testament prophecy. We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. If you turn back to the book of Psalms, specifically in Psalm 72, we see a reference to the eternality, the foreverness of the Lord Jesus, of the Messiah, of God Almighty. Uh, Psalm 72, specifically at verse 17. His name shall endure forever. His name shall continue as long as the sun, and men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. And then turn over to Psalm 89. Same emphasis in this covenant psalm concerning David's greater son, even our Lord Jesus Christ. So notice in Psalm 89 at verses 36 and 37. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne is the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky. Turn over to Psalm 110, that promise concerning, again, David's greater son. 
And in Psalm 110.1, we read a Psalm of David, and then you have this powerful statement that's either quoted or alluded to in the New Testament more than just about any other passage in the Old Testament. In other words, Psalm 110 was, uh, 1 was the battle cry of the ancient church while she was suffering under the oppression of the Roman Empire. She didn't whine, she didn't retreat, she didn't go lick her wounds, but she cried out that blessed reality that God said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make all of your enemies your footstool. And then notice with reference to the eternality of Christ in verse four, the Lord has sworn and will not relent that you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And then of course that prophecy in the prophet Isaiah at chapter nine, verses six and seven. There is a statement concerning the king and a statement concerning his kingdom. And in 9.6, we read, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So going back to our passage, when they say to Jesus in verse 34, the people answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. They were right, but they were neglectful because when they go on to question him and challenge him, they betray their own ignorance with reference to their scriptures. So back to verse 34, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? So again, they got part of it, but they didn't get all of it. Go back to the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 3, we not only have the promise of a Messiah that will be victorious, but we have the promise of a Messiah that will be victorious, predicated upon his own suffering and death. See, the Jews at Jesus' time, they liked the exaltation, they like the glory, they like the majesty, they like the power. In other words, they like the crown, but they didn't like the suggestion that there was a cross. Well, in Genesis 3.15, that first announcement of the gospel, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Well, how does he bruise his heel? It's through his suffering and death on the cross for us men and for our salvation. See, they miss that part. They miss Genesis chapter 22 when God tells Abraham, take your son, your only son, the son of your love, up to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him. What was the take-home message from that particular day? Well, Abraham said it well to Isaac. The Lord will provide for himself the ram or the lamb of God that will take away the sin of the world. You get to the prophet Isaiah. Some refer to Isaiah, the prophet, as the fifth gospel. And I don't think that's without warrant. Isaiah 53, one of the passages that John's gonna cite in just a few moments, Isaiah 53 talks about the death of the Lord Jesus. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. We've got that messianic reading in, in Daniel chapter 9, the cutting off of Messiah. Again, they saw the, the prestige and glory and eternality associated with Messiah, but they didn't see his death. 
And so when Christ comes along and says, I must be lifted up, it's because of this lifting up that I'm going to draw all men to myself. That's what evokes from them this particular question. We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? The questioners are not sincere. They're not looking for additional information. They have the information from Jesus. They're just calculatingly showing their disapproval of his particular message. The questioners are scandalized at the prospect of a crucified Messiah. It is simple, very simple. Paul comments on this in 1 Corinthians 1, 21 to 23. He says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through what? the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And then he says to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness, but to us who are being saved, Christ is both the wisdom and the power of God. What does he mean by scandaling? A, a, a scandal or a scandaling, a scandaling block. He means that the Jews were scandalized at the prospect that their Messiah must live like us, must be delivered up to death, and must suffer that shame and that curse. They missed that part. But the Old Testament clearly portrays that. The Old Testament clearly teaches that. So it was ignorance on their part. It wasn't a misteaching on the part of the Savior. So they pressed Jesus with this particular question. Now notice the way that Jesus answers in verse 35. The function of his response here is ethical. It's ethical. He doesn't satisfy their curiosity for more data. He doesn't say, well, look at Genesis 3, verse 15. Look at Genesis chapter two, uh, 22 and see typologically that the Son of God must suffer and die. A Son of God must be delivered up and, and die. Or, or 2 Samuel chapter 7 or, or Isaiah 53. He doesn't do that. He is pressing upon them now the necessity to come to him. See, he's not just providing more information. He is getting ethical in terms of the response that he tries to elicit from them. Turn back to Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 13, where you see a similar convention used by our Lord to press upon his hearers the necessity to examine themselves and to close with him. In other words, don't just ponder the, the particulars involved in the theology behind the answer. We must certainly do that. Much of the pulpit ministry here is tasked with that particular charge is to explain the theology of the cross, explain the theology behind the word that, that was made flesh, that, that came down for us men and for our salvation. There's a sense, brethren, where we've got to own that theology experientially. We've got to lay hold of it by that hand of faith. Notice in Luke 13 at verse 1, there were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse sinners than all the other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then look over at verse 23. Well, verse 22. And he went through the cities and villages teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow gate. What's he saying? Somebody asks the good theological question, is post-millennialism right? 
Are there uh, a few that will be saved? Or are there going to be many that will be saved? What does Jesus say? He says, you need to think about you. You need to consider your place before this thrice holy God. You need to ask the question, have I believed on him? Sometimes we hear sermons. I think we're probably all guilty of this. I, I, maybe I'm projecting here. I know when I've heard sermons, this is one of my proclivities. Oh, I'm glad so-and-so is here because he or she really needs to hear this. You know, it's a sermon on, you know, wives being submissive to your own husbands as to the Lord. And I'm thankful my beloved is here because she needs this word from on high. But we tend to do that, don't we? These guys are just asking the simple question. How, how can you say that the Son of Man must die? What's Jesus do? He presses their consciences. He calls upon them to make a decision. Now, I'm not an Arminian. I'm not a Pelagian. Anybody who chooses for Jesus does so because of the effectual grace of God Most High. But that does not mitigate the reality that from time to time in our Bibles, you see Jesus, you see apostles, and you see prophets press their hearers. You need to respond to this. And that's what Jesus does in his response to these particular men. So going back to John 12, notice in verse 35, then Jesus said to them, a little while longer, the light is with you. A little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. Now, light and darkness has come up a lot in John's gospel. Light is associated with the kingdom of heaven and darkness is associated with the kingdom of darkness. Pretty simple. So what is Jesus saying in essence to them? He's saying to them, you don't have a billion years here. You don't have an endless age here. You know, sometimes we act like we're eight foot tall and bulletproof. Nothing can ever happen to me. I'll make my peace with God when I'm older. But when I'm 17 or 18, I've got lots to do. I've got a lot of things to, to, to undertake. You don't have that particular luxury to know that there is a tomorrow. In fact, James condemns such an attitude. He says, if the Lord, uh, if the Lord wills, we will go to such and such a city. We will traffic and trade and make profits. Well, Jesus is pressing these hearers. And notice what he says specifically in terms of his, his press. He says, the people presently had the light. While you have the light. I think that simply refers to Jesus' earthly ministry. While he is there, while he is preaching, while he is teaching, while he is conducting miracles, while he's engaging in those signs and wonders, you should pay attention. You should listen. You should observe these things and you should lay hold of these things by faith. And you shouldn't let go of them because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Word of God, comes into this world sinners to save. And so he presses them on that reality. And then notice the caution that he gives them. He says very clearly, walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. When our children were little, we went through the book of Exodus. And in order to uh, demonstrate Pharaoh's hardness of heart, we took a piece of bread and we laid it out on the counter. And each night we'd look back at that bread. And you know what we never noticed was that that bread got soft that that bread got malleable, that that bread got to a place where you'd want to put it into your mouth. It just got hard, it got crusty, it got to the point where you could bang it and it would shatter into so many pieces. Pharaoh hardened his heart, God hardened his heart. 
And we're going to see some of that movement in our own passage. The longer you resist, and I'm not trying to scare anybody here. I'm not trying to make you feel bad, unless that feeling bad leads you to go to the Lord Jesus Christ. Resisting Christ doesn't end with a softer heart. It doesn't end with a more malleable mindset. Oh yeah, I'm open to the belief, to, to the belief on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the more you resist and the more you reject. Spurgeon well said, the most foolish of sinner is the grayhead sinner. That man who has resisted and rejected as a matter of course of life. I'm not saying he's outside the boundaries of God's grace. God can't save and humble a gray-headed man. But I am suggesting that when you learn and you practice and you revel in patterns of unbelief, it's darkness that ultimately overtakes you. It's not neutral. It's not passive. You're not just kind of there, you know, either A or B. If you are not with Christ, you're against Christ. And as those against Christ, it only rises up more and more, gets harder and harder, more difficult, more resolute, more of this reality that whatever the preacher says, whatever my parents say, whatever my friend may say, whatever my husband or wife may say, I'm just going to resist it. I'm going to reject it. That never ends well. And that's what Jesus is pressing them with on this occasion. So he says, while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. Notice, he who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. He's not enlightened. This isn't a positive thing. The atheist, the God-hater, the rebel, the rejecter of God's truth, the person who says, there's no God, there's no accountability on high, there's no everlasting hell and no everlast, uh, uh, heaven and no everlasting punishment, that's all just a bunch of myth and fairy tale. That man's in bondage, brethren. He's not a free thinker. He's not liberated. He is in darkness. He has an ax to grind with the living and the true God. And the Lord Jesus underscores that with his contemporaries, his audience. He says, he who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. He's trying to arouse them. He is waking them up. He is, as it were, shaking them by the shoulders and saying, you need to reckon with these things. You need to look to me in faith. And then he says as much in verse 36. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. That's the continual emphasis in John's gospel on the way of salvation. Notice that John 1 does not start with, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. And that word has come to tell you the five things you need to do in order to earn your favor with God. That's not it. The word became flesh. He dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. Well, why does he do that? Again, to live in our place, to die in our place, and to be raised again on that third day. So the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is the revelation of God's grace through faith in Jesus of that so great a salvation. So from John 1 in the prologue all the way to the, to, to the thesis statement of the book, we see this emphasis on belief. Notice in 1.11, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, how does that work? To them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who what? Believe in his name. You receive Jesus and his benefits by belief in his name. 
It's not works, it's not law-keeping, it's not merit, it's not you just reforming your life and adding a few religious duties, you reforming your life and stopping a few particular vices, and then God will say, well, good on you, I'm glad you cleaned up your act, I'm going to receive you unto myself now. No, it's faith in Christ. That is the means whereby we appropriate Jesus and his benefit. And then notice in John 20, there's lots of passages in between. You probably know the text, but look at the summary statement in John 20 at verses 30 and 31. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, notice, that you may believe. Again, I'm not here to pick on you, but I am trying to encourage you to pay attention to what John is doing. John wants us to reflect upon the unbelief of Jesus' contemporaries, but he doesn't want us to do it simply out there. He wants you to reflect upon your own heart, your own condition, your own place before him. Am I with Christ or am I against Christ? So these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone. That is the constant refrain. So going back to our text in John 12, Jesus says that in verse 36. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. So what we have there is something of a parable Something of a sort of a confirmatory statement. When it just says he was hidden from them, yes, he was no longer immediately present with them. That's a commentary on what Jesus' ministry is doing. If you don't close with him, if you don't believe on him, if you don't trust him, if you don't take his word as he speaks it, sees it as the truth, and then lays hold of it by faith, there's that departure. There is that lack of access. And that's what's underscored here. Now that brings us to John the Apostle's reflection on their unbelief in verses 37 to 41. Essentially what he's saying is, you ought not to be surprised about this. In fact, we already read it in John 1.10. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. In other words, it was always the case that there was going to be these renegades, these rebels, these rejectors, these unbelievers... It wasn't going to be the case at the moment Jesus touched down in this world that everybody would flock to him in faith, bow to him, and confess him as Lord and Savior. That's just not the nature of the event. Now, there's every tribe, every tongue, every people, every, every nation. There's a great multitude that no man can number assembled before that throne in the book of Revelation. There's a lot of unbelief as well. And so what we find here is John the Apostle explaining this unbelief. We might ask the question, well, Jesus was right in their midst, and they didn't believe in him. He was right there. He, he did signs and wonders right before their eyes, and they rejected that. They resisted that. What could possibly be a temptation? It could possibly be a temptation to say, well, well, that doesn't seem right. I mean, if Jesus is who Jesus says he is, then certainly everybody should respond to that. Everybody should believe on him. Everybody should own him as Lord. Everybody should put him up on a throne instead of a cross. No, this unbelief is the reality. I think it goes all the way back to that text in Genesis 3.15 again. What does God say there? He says, I will put enmity between you and the seed of the woman. Right? Right? 
There's a God-imposed enmity between the righteous and the unrighteous. You see the, 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 the Bible go in that particular direction. There are godly men who begin to call upon the name of the Lord, and then you've got men that are rebellious and wretched and, and will never come to the Savior. So John now muses on this unbelief. So he first gives a statement of it in verse 37, and then he gives the explanation of it in verses 38 to 40. But notice the statement in verse 37. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. They did not believe in him. Now there is this abundance of evidence. Look at it. He had done so many signs before them. Huh. You mean if there's all these miracles, there's all these signs, there's all these wonders, that there's people that saw them, there were people that, that witnessed these things, and yet these people continued to, to disbelieve? They continue to try to upbraid him? What's, what's this teaching on the Son of Man having to die? Who do you think you are? The law tells us of the eternality of Christ. And now you've come and told us that there's going to be this death. They despised him, but they had seen his many miracles. The commentary here is on the entirety of Jesus' ministry. We've seen it working through John's gospel. The water into wine, which, by the way, manifested his glory. The healing of the nobleman's son. The healing of the man at Bethesda. The feeding of the 5,000. The walking on water. The healing of the man born blind. And the raising of Lazarus. That's a lot of signs. That's an abundance of signs. That's a lot of, a lot of data to sort of lay hold of. So look at what John says in verse 37. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. So it wasn't just that he did them, but it was before them. I think this language exacerbates their guilt. So it's not like, well, you know, they were in bed that day when Jesus did that thing. So, so, so they're off the hook. No, the text is very specific. He had done so many signs before them. And then notice as well the rejection of that evidence. They did not believe in him. Keep your finger there and look at Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 11. Draw a point out of this that I think is most necessary. Matthew chapter 11, specifically at verse 20. Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. So going back to our text and musing on this particular text as well, what do we learn? The evidence, the signs, the wonders themselves don't save a sinner, right? It's just that simple. You must be born again. Remember, we're in John's gospel here. Nicodemus comes by night. He says, teacher, we know that you're a man sent by God, for no one could do these signs unless God was with him. What does Jesus say? Well, I'm glad you recognize that. It, it shows something of my dignity and my identity. No. He says, unless you are born again, you shall not see the kingdom of God. In other words, evidences, signs, and wonders are all wonderful. I'm not suggesting otherwise. But in order for it to stick, 
in order for it to be received, in order for it to, to, to result in, in being a, a son of the light, there must be God's power. There must be God's glory. There must be God's breaking in. There must be God's taking out that old stony heart, putting in a new fleshly heart, granting the graces of faith and repentance. Signs and wonders and miracles don't make theists, don't make believers. It is the grace of God most high. Now we present the signs, the wonders, the miracles. We show that to show them the dignity, the glory, and the majesty of our blessed Savior. Trusting that God utilizes that data to affect their hearts in such a way that they by grace come to him and know the joy of being found in him. So these persons saw the signs, and yet they resisted, yet they rejected. John Gill says, they believed not on him, the miracles done by Christ before their eyes, which they could not deny, nor disprove, and were so many and so great, were aggravations of their unbelief. And such indeed is the nature of that sin, and so deeply rooted is it, that is, that the most powerful means and mighty works will not bring a person to believe in Christ without the powerful and efficacious grace of God. So as I've said many a time, as we come here on Sunday, morning and evening, we ought to pray for the ministry of the Spirit. Yes, we want people to understand the theology of the Bible. We want them to understand their own sin, be convicted of it, see the Lord Christ as altogether lovely and chief among 10,000. And by God's grace, believe on him and, and receive those redemptive benefits through the empty hand of faith. That's the hope and the desire. Because the signs and the wonders don't make Christians. It's God who makes Christians through the new birth and through that gift of faith by which we receive his benefits. Now notice he goes on to explain this unbelief. He makes the declaration in verse 37. And then he goes back to the Old Testament to show the rationale. So notice in verses 38 to 40, he first appeals to Scripture. Verse 38, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled which he spoke. One man well said, the, these people did not believe, but it was not because Isaiah predicted this. Rather, Isaiah predicted this because they were not going to believe. That's the connection. In other words, when John tries to provide this rationale for unbelief, it's as if he's saying, trust God. He knew that this was exactly what was going to happen. And the prophet Isaiah spoke to this, specifically in chapter 53, and then again in chapter 6. Notice that first quotation in verse 38. That the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The prophet's asking the same question. Lord, who, who's believed our report? The, the, the arm of the Lord, most likely Jesus himself, has been displayed. Jesus himself has come from the presence of the Father, not by a local motion, but by the assumption of our humanity. He comes to live amongst us. He comes to die. He comes to be raised again. And yet the prophet, Isaiah says, who's believed our report? And that particular section in Isaiah 53, it concerns what two facets of the Messiah's work, his death and his exaltation. See, there's what's called servant songs of Isaiah, four servant songs of Yahweh in the prophet Isaiah. They're in chapters 42, 49, 50, and then 53. Well, the end of 52 into 53. 
We're most familiar with the 53rd chapter. We're most familiar with the announcement of the Lord's champion, the Messiah that would be cut off, the Messiah that would die, the Messiah that it would please the Lord to bruise or crush. But on the heels of that suffering, there would be exaltation. There would be majesty. There would be glory. There would be triumph. And so in the midst of that prophetic statement, the prophet Isaiah asks the question, Lord, who has believed our report? Anticipating the actual coming of the Lord Jesus when he is incarnate, when he does assume our humanity, when he does live amongst us and we behold his glory, and yet not everybody flocks to him. Not everybody believes in him. Remember, this is the Passion Week. By the end of this week, they're going to be shouting, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Give us Barabbas, give us the terrorist, give us the insurrectionist, but with Jesus, we want him hung on that cross and we want him crucified. These persons did not believe, but this was always known by our blessed God. So the servant of the Lord's song, specifically chapter 53, duplicates the situation that you find in John 12. Jesus announces his glory. Jesus announces his death. Jesus announces the triumph that will come as a result of that death. So Isaiah, or rather John, invoking Isaiah is essentially telling us, this is what God said back then. This is what we should have expected back then. Again, when you turn to John 1 and you say he comes to his own, or you read he comes to his own and his own does not, do not receive him, you think, what malefactors, what monstrous wretches, what horrible people, that, that the Messiah would come to his own and they would not receive him? It's the sin problem. It's the in Adam thing. It's the kingdom of darkness situation. It's the ruler of this age blinding the eyes and the, the minds and the hearts of sinners. The prophet's question and the evangelist's application indicate that it was not only the works of the Lord, but it was the words of the Lord. Lord, who has believed our report? Oh, I don't know. Reports like verse 36. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. So the Lord Jesus is rejected here. Not only his outward works of signs and wonders and glorious things, but also his words. Paul invokes the same passage in Romans 10 when he's talking about Jewish unbelief. He uses 10.16 to substantiate the reality, and it is this, this text, Isaiah 53.1, and then he says in verse 17 there, so then faith comes by hearing, and what? Hearing by the word of God. In other words, they've rejected that word. They've resisted that truth. They've looked away. They have not gone after the Messiah the way that God calls them to. And then that brings him to the response of God. So we got the question in verse, uh, verse 38, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Notice in verse 39, therefore they could not believe because Isaiah said again, and now he goes to Isaiah 6, 9 and 10. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. So he's saying this, to encourage us that the gospel is not failing. Christ's ministry is not for naught. Christ's ministry here is not one defined by losing. Christ's ministry is perfectly executed according to the plan and purpose of the Father who gave it to him. The response on the part of man is not a surprise. Again, brethren, we hate God by nature. You may think to yourself right now, well, you know, 
I'm not necessarily a believer, but I don't think I'm the worst person on the face of the earth. That's not my argument. There's always somebody worse than you. Always. You're not Paul Pot, so re rejoice in that. But the bottom line is, is that the sin thing affects us totally. Our minds, our hearts, our bodies. We call it in theology the doctrine of total depravity. And so when Christ comes in the blaze of glory, doing these signs and wonders, and people don't believe in him, the conclusion is not, well, he must be failing. He must be losing. He must not be getting what he anticipated. No, he's going right according to plan. And now what John the Apostle is doing is quoting Isaiah the prophet to the effect that with reference to these persons that have been blessed and benefited with actually getting to witness the functioning Messiah before them, in their resistance, in their unbelief, guess what it leads to? Further instances of God's judgment. Further instances of God's hardening their heart. That's the emphasis there in Isaiah 6. Notice in verse 39, therefore they could not believe because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts in turn so that I should heal them. Now the context of Isaiah 6 is most instructive here. So by the time he's in Isaiah 53 and he says, Lord, who, who has believed our report? He's already built up quite the ministry and he has seen the unbelief by his contemporaries. So in Isaiah chapter 6, right around verses 1 to 5, Isaiah gets a, a, a vision of the glory of God. He gets this vision of the glory of God, the angels standing in, in antiphonal praise. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is, is filled with his glory. And when Isaiah sees that, what's his response? Well, this is neat. This is really cool. I get to be privy to this kind of act. He says, woe is me, for I am... I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I, I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. Why? Because my eyes have seen the glory of the Lord. So then what happens on the heels of that? There's preparation for pro prophetic ministry. How does it come? Well, Isaiah, you need to go to prophet school. You need to learn all your theology. You need to understand your confession, and you need to get out there and start to bring it. No, he already had the theology. He just needed forgiveness. He needed atonement. And so the angel takes that white hot coal and puts it upon the tongue or upon the lips of the prophet to prepare him for ministry. So he has a vision of the divine glory, preparation of the ministry, uh, uh, prophetic ministry, but then the nature of his task. I've often thought about this. If a man was being sort of brought into gospel ministry, you know, we have our vote and then we have our our test and we examine him and then we can with absolute certainty say you know what your ministry is going to be a failure it's just going to fail <laughs> do you think that guy would be like great sign me up throw me in coach I'm, i can't wait this is what happens when god tells the prophet god the divine lord says who shall go for us who shall we send the prophet's hand goes straight up. He says, here am I, Lord, send me. Okay, you want to go? You're going to be to them a means of condemnation. You're going to be an instrument to them of, of woe. You're going to be a testimony against them for their rejection of God Most High and their having gone a-whoring from him to the gods of the, the nations around them. 
he tells them he's going to have a failure of a ministry. You're going to preach to them. They're going to hear you. Their ears are going to be dull. Their eyes aren't going to see. There's going to be this judicial hardening that obtains. And I think that is precisely the commentary here in John chapter 12. Not over all men everywhere. This isn't extensive to you and I, the elect of God, who by God's grace have believed. But to these first century Jews, to these Jerusalem sinners, to these men that are going to cry out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. There is judgment upon them. And that's the statement of the prophet Isaiah when he says he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts in turn, so that I should heal them. Go back one more time to Matthew 11. Again, a very similar situation in Jesus' earthly ministry. We have this upbraiding of the nations or the cities around him that saw his mighty miracles and did not repent in verses 20 to 24. But then notice in verse 25, at that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things. In the context, these things are gospel truths. You have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Now, Jesus isn't acknowledging there's a class of people out there that are wise and prudent. He's talking about these men that are wise and prudent in their own eyes. These guys that think they don't need divine grace. They don't need help from on high. They don't need salvation from the Lord's Christ. They can exercise their free will. They can add a few good works. They can stop going to, you know, bad places where they shouldn't go. But the absolute emphasis upon divine grace, come on. Jesus says, I bless you. I praise you, Father, that you have hidden these things. What happens to us when we read something like that? Don't say it, but you might think it. If you've been here for any time, hopefully you don't still think it. But you might go, well, well that, that's not fair. It just doesn't seem fair, does it? I mean, we love fair, don't we? We don't love fair enough to opt for hell. Fair is that we all go to hell for our sins and rebellion against God most High. So there's a sense where we don't want fair, but there's a sense where we do want fair. But it's always on our terms. That's not fair that, that God hides gospel truth. God is the divine judge of all the earth, and all that he does is right. And when God hides gospel truth from these people, it's an act of judgment. They're not neutral, sympathetic characters that are just trying their best in this first century situation. No, they're God-hating rebels that have rejected the Messiah sent from Yahweh and that will deliver him up to the cross under Pontius Pilate. So these are not neutral beings. By this time in our Lord's earthly ministry, the condemnation of Isaiah 6, 9 and 10 is perfectly appropriate for these wretches, for these resistors, for these rejectors. Paul says as much in Romans chapter 9, where incidentally, he's dealing with the issue of ethnic Jews not believing the gospel. Notice in Romans 9, 14, what then shall we say, or what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Now notice in verse 17, for the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. 
Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. Back to the text, let's try to tie this up, and let's try to get real practical here. If it sounds like God's not fair, it's you that's got the problem. This happened in the prophet Ezekiel's day as well. God, through Ezekiel, condemns the people. You say the way of the Lord is not fair. He knew that. He knew their complaint. He knew what they were saying and in opposition to him. The, the way of the Lord is not fair. You know what God says through the prophet? Well, I'll try harder so that, you know, the human bar of reason can be satisfied with divine fairness. No. He says it's their way that's not fair. You are a people that have gone away from the living and true God. You've bowed to Baal. You've thrown your children in the arms of Molech. You've gone after all kinds of strange things and wickedness and vileness. And you've got the gall. Now, I'm amplifying a bit, but you get the point. To, to, to call into question God's fairness? Brethren, we are wretches. We're not in any position to say, well, that's not fair. But back to our text, this is an, a, a, an example of God's hardening upon these people. So if you're here today, again, and you're not a believer in Jesus, listen to Jesus. I, I don't know how better to say it than, than what he says there in verse 36. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Because if you don't, there is a running out time. There is an expiration date. There is a time when you're going to cross from this plane into another sphere of existence. And you're going to hear the accursed words of Christ Most High. Depart from me, I never knew you. Into everlasting fire prepared for the, the devil and his angels. So John is reflecting here upon the unbelief of the contemporaries of our Lord Jesus. I'm trying to get us to reflect upon that same unbelief that is rampant in the hearts of men, women, boys, and girls today. The corrective or the answer is stop disbelieving. Believe. Look to him in faith. And then notice what John says to confirm all that John has said about the divinity of our blessed Savior. How can you say the Son of Man must die? They didn't get the hypostatic union. They didn't understand the one person and the two natures. They didn't understand the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But John the apostle did. John the evangelist does. John the theologian does. Because look at what he tells us in verse 41. So the prophet Isaiah was not only preaching the death of the Savior, but he was preaching the exaltation of the Savior. The Lord Jesus announces the arrival of the hour in 1223 with this language. The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. John ends this section in verse 41. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Now, the NIV renders this well. You know that I'm not usually the biggest fan, but it says here, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. That's what John is saying. John is saying that in the year that King Uzziah died, when the prophet Isaiah was given that vision of the throne room of God Most High, when he saw the Lord of hosts, the one whose, whose glory fills the entirety of the cosmos, it was the glory of Jesus that he saw. 
So not only does this unbelief on the part of the Jews not teach failure or a loss or some sort of, you know, breach in the system, but it underscores once again the glory of the Son of God who loved us and who gave himself for us. It is a wonderful statement. The appeal to Isaiah 53 is concerned with the death and exaltation of Jesus, just like John 12. The vision in Isaiah 6 concerns the Lord of hosts, just like in John 12. It's not going to surprise you that next week, when we look at that concluding statement of our Lord, what do you think he does as he closes out his earthly ministry? He once again insists on his identity as the divine son and his authority as the divine son. In other words, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. And that word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. But not everybody did. There were rejectors, there were despisers, there were resistors, there were those who continued in their unbelief. That does not diminish his glory, that does not diminish his power, that does not diminish his, his majesty, but rather it is what the prophet Isaiah foretold concerning that ministry of the incarnate son to save his people from their sins. In conclusion, we need to ponder the question concerning the Messiah that these men asked in verses 34 to 36. I would suggest they were carnal. They wanted a Messiah that would give them prestige. They wanted a Messiah that would break the backs of Roman oppression. They wanted a Messiah that would put a car in their driveway, a summer house for them to attend to, and all kinds of geopolitical prestige. What the Jews today, unbelieving Jews, at least I think in theory, are still looking for. In a rejection of Jesus Christ as the Messiah, they are admittedly waiting for the Messiah to come and usher in a blessed time for ethnic Israel. That misses the boat by about a million miles. The church of Christ is the, 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 the apple of his eye. It's the church of Christ that is the Israel of God, according to Galatians chapter 6. It's not ethnic Israel in the future. It's the church of Jesus Christ right now. So these men were carnal. These men were duped. These men were looking for something that would only satisfy for the temporal. As well, the unbelieving Jews were ignorant. They saw Messiah's eternality and power, but they missed his suffering and death. That's a vital component announced throughout the law. You don't miss that. You're not supposed to miss that. That's why you read the Old Testament. And the unbelieving Jews ultimately were scandalized by the Lord Jesus Christ, but this did not take God unawares. This was what was prophesied in Isaiah 53 and in Isaiah chapter 6. And then in conclusion, I would suggest and encourage once again that you behold the glory of Jesus. You know, we get to that point and, you know, Christmas time is next month or you know, the end of December. And we talk about Jesus' birthday. Yuck. Absolute yuck. Jesus' birthday seems to be Aryan in some degree. There was a time when the sun was not. The incarnation isn't a, a birthday. It is the assumption of our flesh, the assumption of our humanity with all the essential properties and all the common infirmities thereof, and yet without sin. And why does he assume that flesh? Again, so he can live in light of God's law. He doesn't renege. He doesn't shrink back. He always does what pleases the Father. Well, why does he do that? 
certainly to vindicate himself as the champion of God, as the one who wins this salvation, but it's manward as well. We need a righteousness that avails with God. One of the beauties of believing in Jesus is not only that you're forgiven of sin, which is a beauty, but you're also considered righteous in his sight. So the Lord Jesus Christ in the incarnation takes on our humanity to live for us, to die for us, and to be raised again for us. So that everyone who looks to him in faith will have everlasting life. You'll pass from death to life. You pass from darkness to light. You pass into the presence of God Most High after you breathe your last. Again, brethren, I'm not suggesting life on earth is always going to be temporally wonderful. You're only ever going to have good things. No, you might have misery. You might have pain. You might have suffering. The heretics of the so-called health, wealth, and prosperity gospel are just that. They're heretics. They're vile, wicked, pernicious men. The Bible teaches that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will what? They'll suffer persecution, especially in an age which is growing increasingly anti-Christ growing increasingly anti-God, against Yahweh and against his Christ. We're witnessing that. To the degree that we live in light of this word, to the degree that we live the way that Paul bids us in Ephesians 4 and 5, it is to that degree we will know something of persecution and opposition. But once this present evil age passes, what do we have? An eternity with God Almighty. So do not resist do not reject, listen to the Savior's words, and believe in the light so that you may become sons of the light. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity that we find in both prophet and apostle and the explanation of unbelief. We know this is the case in our own generation, in our own day. So we appeal to you, God Most High, the one who is able to crush the cedars of Lebanon by that powerful voice. We pray that you would come and crush hardened hearts through the proclamation of the gospel today. And may you bring a multitude forth and may you grant them the graces of faith and repentance that they may have everlasting life. We pray for our children and for our young people. We commend them to you and to the word of your grace and pray that you would capture their minds and hearts in their early age, that the darkness would not overtake them, that they would not get to that place of, of irre uh, uh, being irrecoverable. Just be merciful and be gracious. And we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We can